Well, thank you, Jenny, and thank all of you for your attention. It's just been a great blessing to me over the last several weeks. And rest assured, Elaine and I will be praying for your continued ministry and for the one that God calls here to be your senior leader. You will be in our prayers. So today, we are culminating uh, a series really directed at answering the question that I've raised in one way or another uh, each week, and that is, how do we become the church that God wants us to become? Reflecting faith, hope, and love, which God says we should do. Paul said, now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, and certainly he was echoing the teachings of Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do we become that church? This church, my church, any group of Christians, wherever we exist on planet Earth. And a couple of weeks ago, I shared a passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 2, the first church, and out of that passage emerges three experiences we need. We need a vital learning experience with the Word of God. That's foundational. <clears throat> we need vital relational experiences with one another and with God. That's worship. And we need vital witnessing experiences with the unsaved world. That's what happened in the church in Jerusalem. And that was God's design for the church. But today, what I'd like to go, do is to go back to the most foundational of those experiences and talk about the Word of God, the Apostles' teaching, which ultimately became the Word of God, which leads me to a, a very significant question that I've thought about for quite some time in my own life personally. And the question is introspective. It simply is this. To what extent do I appreciate the fact that I have in my hands the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and in my language? I can read it in English. To what extent do I really appreciate that gift? I've introspected about that question. And as, as, as I thought about that question, my mind went back to 16th century England. There was a young man who had a great vision and burden to get the Bible into the hands of the common people. You see, the common people of England had no Bible in their hands. They had no translation into English, their language. And this young man, who was fluent in seven languages, brilliant young man, understood Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, understood Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, began the process of translating the Bible into English, our language. Now, you would think that everybody would be happy, but not King Henry VIII. He was livid, and so was the hierarchy of the church. 
Now, why would they be angry that the Bible was going to be translated into their language, the language of the people? Because they knew that if the average person read the Bible in their language, they would see the hypocrisy that existed in the hierarchy of the church. You see, as evil a man as Henry VIII was, he was the head of the church in that particular structure and society. But William Tyndale was not to be hindered. He continued. But the persecution grew so great, his life was threatened, that he left England, went to another country in protection and almost hibernation, and completed translating the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation in English. An unbelievable task. Well, towards the end of the project, a so-called friend <laughs> said, William, it's okay, you can come back, you'll be safe. It was a setup. And when William Tyndale came back to England, he was incarcerated, he was strangled, and he was burned at the stake so that we could sit here today and have the Bible in English. And his final words as he died was, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And God answered that prayer in the next four years. There were four Bibles in English. Henry VIII, though evil man he was, he authorized other Bibles in English. And eventually, in 1611, King James authorized the King James Bible. 1611, it was published. And what a lot of people don't realize is that about 80% of all the King James Version was the translation done by William Tyndale. A man who gave his life that we could have the Bible in our language. And so I've asked myself the question as I've taught it, as I've researched it, do I really appreciate this gift? Isn't it easy to take something like that for granted? Particularly we don't even understand the history and those who gave their lives that we could have this wonderful gift, the Word of God. And so today I'd like to conclude my series by going back to that foundational experience that we need, and that is to experience the Word of God. And so I've titled the message, The Word of God and the Will of God. You see, God wants us to know His will. And it all began way back at Mount Sinai when God spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. A lot of people don't realize, you don't read carefully, and if you read carefully, you realize that before God inscribed and wrote those tablets, wrote the word of the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, he spoke with a voice, and all of Israel heard him. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he spoke in their language. Wow. And then, you know the story, how he inscribed them in stone. For Moses. And Moses went on then to be the prophet who gave us the first five books of the Bible. God is beginning his revelation process, but you see, he continued because he has a plan. It's a redemptive plan to deliver us from sin. And the, that plan involves the Messiah. And so God continued to speak through the Old Testament prophets. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. 
and the minor prophets. They're called minor, not because they're minor, but because they are smaller books. And so we have God speaking through Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. All of these men inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us the Word of God, in essence, the Old Testament. God is setting a stage. The stage for the coming of Jesus Christ, who then chose the apostles. And God spoke through the apostles in the New Testament era. And as we shared with you a couple weeks ago, as Peter got up to speak, the people continued in the apostles' teaching. So first, just as God did and Moses did, first they spoke And then they wrote, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to give us the Bible, the whole Bible. So, the bottom line in God's revelation for us is God inspired the authors of Scripture to record His messages in writing, and here we have it in our hands today. And thank God for men like William Tyndale have it in their own language. But how did all of this happen? Talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Let me take you to a conversation that Jesus was having with the apostles shortly before his death, and they were in the upper room. In fact, Judas has already left. In John 14, they're nervous. And Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go away. I'll come again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But in the meantime... He said, I'm going to send someone else that will minister to you and through you. And he's called the Spirit of Truth. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 14, and you can see these verses. I'll have them on the screen, but if you go to John chapter 14, verse 16, here's what Jesus said to these men who are nervous. And I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another counselor. Now, thank God we don't have to understand the language of the New Testament to understand what Jesus is saying. But here it would help you, I think, to know the Greek word that Jesus used. And there's a reason I'm doing this, and I'll share it with you later. The word that Jesus used here for counselor is parakletos. I'm going to give you another parakletos. It's variously translated. Here's translated counselor. In the Old King James, it's translated comforter, give you another comforter. You could translate it another teacher. One of my favorite words that it could be translated to is encourager, because that's the basic word that's translated encouraged many times in the New Testament. So it could read, I'm going to send you another encourager to be with you forever. And then he identifies him as the spirit of truth. And three times here in this upper room discourse, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a spirit of truth. And that's significant. Because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal through these men truth. Because the Bible is truth. Jesus said, the spirit of truth. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. And then go on down a few verses, 25, 26. He said, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the parakletos, 
the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, and he'll teach you all things. That's why you could call him the teacher. He will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything I have told you. Now remember, Jesus has been with these men for about three years, a little over three years. And much of what Jesus taught them, they forgot. And what they did remember, they distorted. They didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. They didn't even at this moment really believe that Jesus was going to die. And so Jesus said, when this spirit comes, he'll declare, he will remind you of everything I have told you these last three and a half years. Now, sitting there or reclining there in that room, well, one man that was sitting there was Matthew. Matthew was a former tax collector, became a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm sure he's pulling on his beard and scratching his head and saying, what's Jesus talking about? Well, he's not going to really understand this until almost 25 or 30 years later. And I wish I could have been there somewhere in the New Testament world. Matthew may be sitting or reclining or maybe it was in the middle of the night. And he had an experience. And he knew that he was to roll out his scroll. He knew that he was to pick up his pen and begin to write thoughts that were coming into his mind. Things that he had long forgotten. And he began to write. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He had heard those words from Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes over 25 years ago. But he was inspired. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And he went on to record all of the Beatitudes. Not only the Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount. And then he recorded the Gospel of Matthew, which was a fulfillment of what Jesus said, he'll remind you of everything I have told you. And we have Matthew in our Bibles today. It came true in Matthew's life. This promise. But Jesus wasn't finished here in this upper room. He said in verse 26, chapter 15, when the counselor comes, the one I will send you, the paraclete, or paracletos, paraclete is a shortened form. When he comes from the Father, the one I will send you, from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me, Jesus. Well, sitting there, or reclining, I think, right next to Jesus. In fact, we read that during the Lord's Supper, he was sitting right next to Jesus actually leaning on his breast. And it was the Apostle John. And I'm sure John is scratching his head, pulling on his beard, because he doesn't have a clue. In fact, a short time before, he's arguing with the others who is to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But, 60 years later, he begins to understand in fullness what Jesus said. We don't know where he was. Perhaps he was in Ephesus. 
Now, this is 60 years plus after the Lord returned to heaven, after the church was born, and he too had an experience. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen with the, the look on his face, the gleam in his eye, as he rolled out a scroll in prompting by the Holy Spirit, picked up his pen, and he began to record. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John went on to record by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to fulfill this promise, the whole gospel of John, and culminated that gospel by these words saying, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, us, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. What was the promise? When he comes, he will testify about me. John is testifying about Jesus. He was the Son of God. And in believing, we have life through his name. And here we have today in our Bibles the Gospel of John. And by the way, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God and believed in your heart that he is the Savior of the world and your Savior, I hope you'll receive him before you walk out the doors today. Because that's why the Holy Spirit inspired John to record that gospel that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Fulfilling the promise that Jesus made, when he comes, he will testify about me. That's what the Holy Spirit did in John's life. And later, right in the same passage, he said, Jesus, verse 13, 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. All the truth. For he will not speak in his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. What is to come? Five years later, about 65 years later, after this was stated, John was on the Isle of Patmos in a cave, incarcerated. I've been there. It's an incredible experience. But not only did the Holy Spirit appear, but Jesus Christ himself, who is one with the Spirit, appeared to John and said, John, pick up your scroll and write the things that are and the things to come. And he proceeded to give us the whole book of Revelation, which correlates with the promise. He will declare to you what is to come. And so the last book of the Bible is included in the canon of the New Testament, the sacred scriptures. Now, you know what happened? <clears throat> Jesus died shortly after, rose again, ascended back to heaven, and the parakletos came and descended there in Jerusalem. The church was born, began to speak through Peter, the apostles' teaching. 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, first they spoke, and then they wrote. And what we have in the New Testament, in essence, is the apostles' teaching, the whole revelation of God. Now, I want to fast forward you in the biblical story to Rome, a prison, an inner prison, a dungeon. A man is sitting there. He did not know Christ when the church was born. His name was Saul, became Paul, the great evangelist missionary to the Gentile world. He's completed three missionary journeys. He's now back in prison, this time, the second time, but in a dungeon. And we can imagine scarcely able to see maybe the trickle of light coming through or a candle. He rolls out a scroll and he writes the last letter that he ever wrote. And this happened to be to Timothy. And he wrote these words, but as for you, Timothy. Now remember this last letter Paul ever wrote before he was beheaded. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. He had traveled with Paul through all those missionary journeys. You know those who taught you, and you know that from, the child, from childhood, you've known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now put yourself in Timothy's sandals. You're reading this letter from your beloved spiritual father who is in prison. And it brings back great memories. In fact, the memory that you have as Timothy would be when Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra on the first missionary journey. There was so much hostility that Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. In the book of Acts, it says there was a circle of disciples who had believed that were around him. Who do you suppose was in that circle? Well, I think there was an old Jewish lady and her name was Lois. That was Timothy's grandma. We know her name because at the beginning of this letter, Paul uses her name, refers your grandmother Lois and the faith that she had. And standing next to her probably was a middle-aged, lovely Jewish lady by the name of Eunice, and that was Timothy's mom. And no doubt standing next to them was Timothy in that circle of disciples when Paul first came to that city. And what Paul is talking about here, he's reminding him to remember those who taught him. Who was that? Lois, Grandma, and Mother Eunice. His dad's not here. He wouldn't have been there because he was an unbeliever. We know that from Acts 16. He may have been down worshiping in the temple of Zeus right outside of the city of Lystra. But God used these two godly women and they responded when they heard Paul teaching the Old Testament and pointing to the Messiah that's in the Old Testament, they believed in Jesus Christ. And so he says here, you know that from childhood you've known the sacred scriptures. What were the sacred scriptures? The Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament at this moment. Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Timothy became a believer along with his grandma and his mother. But Paul continues here in this letter. 
And I think he's speaking prophetically when he says, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. I don't think the Holy Spirit revealed to him at this moment that his letter was going to be in the New Testament. Just like in the Old Testament with the prophets. God withheld that information, but they were speaking the word of God. But what he's recording is all scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. Again, here it is in our language. I want to fast forward you one more time, a few years down the road. Someone authored the book of Hebrews. We don't know who it is. I personally think it might have been Apollos. Can't prove that. Doesn't matter because I believe it's the word of God. But in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, we read, and let us be concerned about one another. (laughs) We talked about that last week. 60 times that word is used in relationship to our relationships. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but, get this, encouraging each other. And again, you have the one another concept. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. But what I want you to know is that here the author of Hebrews said, encouraging each other. Now get the connection because this, this is to me, is amazing. The word that is used for encourage, the basic word is the same word Jesus used to define the Holy Spirit, the parakletos. The verb is parakaleo, to encourage. The plural of parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is parakletoi which means we are the parakletoi because we are the ones who are the encouragers of one another. Think about that. Jesus said, I'm sending to you the parakletos so that all believers can become the parakletoi. We can encourage one another because the Holy Spirit became the encouragers through the apostles to give us the word of God. But not only did he author the word of God, but when we believe, he comes to dwell within our lives, enabling us to build up one another through this process of encouragement. I don't know about you, but that thrills me right down to my toes. If it, if it touches your heart, would you say amen? Amen. amen. You, we, are given the same basic name as the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus to encourage one another with the scriptures that he has revealed. And that brings me back to that question, do I really appreciate the gift that God has given me and all of us with the scriptures? Where would we be without the scriptures? I received a telephone call when I was passing a baton of leadership as a senior pastor 13 years ago 
total surprise I was invited to do, as I shared with you the last time I was here a year ago, to do a Principles to Live by Study Bible. They said, Gene, we think you can do this study Bible in about two years because everything you've written. Hello, seven years later. <laughs> it took seven years, I say four days a week, full time to complete the project with 1,500 principles to live by embedded right in the biblical text. Became a part of my life for seven years. Every time I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't go back to sleep, I continued working on the project till I got sleepy and went back to bed. But it was a life-changing experience. First of all, it was incredibly humbling to even be involved in the project. And when I think of what Tyndale did, what I had opportunity to do in the quietness of my office and so forth with computers and all of that was just a little, little tiny piece of what he did in translating the whole Bible so I could sit there in English and do a study Bible, which made me a deeply appreciated of those who gave their life. I didn't give my life. It was a blessing, a joy. The Bible, our foundation, to enable us to become the church that God wants us to become. Amen? Father, indeed, I just thank you for... Oh, wow. Thank you for the word. Thank you for what you've revealed. It's overwhelming, really, when we really grip it, get a hold of it. And we will spend eternity trying to understand it. Your gift to us, not just in Jesus Christ, but the Word of God, the written Word of God that we have right here in our hands today. May we not neglect it in our corporate experience as well as our personal experience, as well as in our families to share it with our children in order that they might grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Come to know him, who is life. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen.